Our call to worship is a selection of verses from Psalm 80. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep roots and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. We come to God with our prayers of praise and our prayers of confession. Let's pray together. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. God of all creation, we come once more to focus our hearts and minds upon you. We come just as we are, carrying within us the experiences of the past week. We come with minds abuzz with thoughts, with hearts bubbling over with emotions, with hopes and fears, regrets and achievements. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we might be saved. We come to give thanks for the things that for us have been good. No matter how small, tentative or fleeting they may be. We come to acknowledge the things that for us have been less than good. The disappointments, disagreements, disillusionments. We seek your favour, the safe embrace of your love, mercy and grace. And so in the silence and the stillness, we rest our weary bodies and weary souls in you. Restore us, O Lord. Let your face shine that we might be saved. We come as we are, frail, Fragile, fallible creatures, longing to be good and gracious, and yet aware of our own limitations. We come to seek recreation for ourselves, and through us, for the families and communities of which we are part. And so we gather our prayers together in the words that Jesus gave to his followers, praying in the form we know best and our own first languages. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. The first of our two readings this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 21, verses 31 to 46. And I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version. Which of the two did the will of his father, they said? The first, Jesus said to them. Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. The parable of the wicked, wicked tenants. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard put a fence around it, dug a winepress in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, He sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they they seized him. They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, You have never read in the scriptures. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. And now from Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 to 15. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I, too, have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard, regard as loss because of Christ. 
More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead, pressing toward the goal. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in in Christ Jesus. Let those of us then who are mature be of the same mind. And if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. Amen. One of the things that people told me at the end of the summer was that they liked it when I came out from behind things and told them stories. Some people thought that I wrote the stories and learned them off by heart and cut them down to bullet points and then did it. Actually, that's not how it worked. I did the work. I wrote the sermon. I sweated over it and then I just left it on the lectern and trusted that somehow... What God wanted us to hear would come through despite me or in spite of me or maybe even to spite me. When I was a student learning to be a minister many years ago, one of my colleagues told us a parable. It's not one you find in the Bible. His parable was the parable of the candle. Small and ignited, it casts light far into the darkness, bringing illumination for miles around, in fact. Um, Ian was telling me last week, um, he worked in a coal mine uh, when he was a young man, and you had to change your gas-powered headlamp by candlelight or your own battery torch. The loss of that light was incredible, to be plunged into total darkness. So we know that candles bring light. And yet, if you draw too close to a candle, right to the edge of the flame, what you discover is darkness, not light. Try it sometime. Go home, light a candle, and look right round that flame, and it's a shadow. It's darkness. You can't see. It's not giving light at that point. The person who told us this parable was doing a seminar on reading parables. And his point, which we were left to work out for ourselves, was sometimes we get so close to the parable that we can't see the light it sheds. So I read the story of the workers in the vineyard this week very carefully, and I looked at the context. The context is Matthew's Holy Week story. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's overturned the temple. And now the die is cast. He knows 
that sooner or later he's going to get arrested and most likely executed. And if we take a kind of Christological rather than human understanding, he knows that the, that purpose for which he came is approaching. And yet he tells this story. I'm going to tell it to you again. Once upon a time, there was a man who had a vineyard. And it was a magnificent vineyard. Beautifully dug out, a fantastic wine press, chose the best vines ever, built a great wall around it. No rats or rabbits were going to get through and destroy this. And the owner decided to lease that vineyard out to tenants and go off. And the payment for the rent would be in grapes at harvest time. And so time went by and the owner thought, well, I'm going to send one of my servants to go and collect the grapes. And so the servant came. But the people in the vineyard wanted to keep the grapes for themselves. So they sent the servant away. And it continued. This owner kept sending the servants, more and more servants, one at a time. And some of them were rejected. Some of them were beaten up. Some of them were called names. Some of them were insulted. But they all came back empty-handed. And so the owner of the vineyard said, right, okay, I'll send my son. Surely, surely when my son comes, they'll respect him and give him the grapes, the harvest that is my due. So he sent the son and they killed him. And then Jesus said, so you tell me, what should happen next? And if you don't believe me, go and read it. Jesus leaves that parable hanging. It's the crowd that fill in the ending. They decide how the story should end. They say, well, they should be thrown out, clearly, in the the vineyard, handed over to other people. And through history, of course, that's how the church has read that parable. That God threw out the Jews because they messed up. They didn't listen to the promise because the Jews, not humanity en masse, as our correct theology would tell us, killed Jesus. So we, the church, were given it instead. Which is fine until you look back over 2,000 years of the story of the church. So is there another way to hear that parable? I think there is, because it's a parable that tells us something about God. We hear it as the the parable of the bad tenants or the wicked tenants. I want to suggest this is the parable of the God who doesn't give up. God made creation full of potential, full of hope, and entrusted it to humankind. And God said, the fruit that I want is justice and fairness and contentment and peace and hope 
And all those things we talked about when we pray the Lord's Prayer. But it seems that God didn't intervene every time the humans got it wrong. There's that Genesis story, isn't there, of Adam and Eve in a garden and they foul up and God sends them out. Bit impatient. There's the story of the floods when God looks around and says, you know what, I wish I'd never created this thing. He's okay though. That Noah chap, him and his family, I'll take them out of it and they with some of the animals of all kinds will start again. But God realised that doesn't actually work. Whether that is a true story or whether it's a myth to tell us something about God. God doesn't just intervene every time it goes wrong and say, right, starting again. God lets us have the freedom to be. That's what free will means. And if you're a Calvinist and don't believe in free will, well, I'm sorry, I'm not apologising for the fact that I am not a Calvinist and I do believe in free will. God gives us the freedom to choose. And God doesn't step in every time we mess up. And make a start again. It's not some kind of holy netball match. And you know I like netball. By gum do you get some interventions in a netball match. Every two seconds just whistles blowing. Touching, stepping. Back chat to the referee. I think that's quite a good one. We should have that one in the church maybe. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't keep saying stop, stop, stop. We've got to sort this out. God gives us freedom. And every now and then, God sends a prophet, or sent a prophet. I believe God still does send prophets. We just don't necessarily recognize them the same way, because they don't have weird hair and they don't shout and scream in the marketplace so much. Prophets who will come and say, actually what God wants is mercy, not sacrifice. Prophets who say, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Prophets who said to the fat cows of Bashan, that's the rich women, woe to you. And, you know, prophets who will challenge us, who see the world with God's eyes and will try to pull us back. And even when all those were rejected, even when Deborah and uh, Isaiah and Hosea and Micah and Malachi, even when all of those weren't listened to, God didn't give up. God sent us Jesus. And even when we killed Jesus, God still didn't give up. God still hasn't given up. Because the kingdom of God, that justice, joy, challenge, choice, freedom, peace, hope, is still in God's heart. But what about Paul? What about this letter he sends to the church at Philippi? I've never really been a Paul fan, which is kind of a shame because my call to ministry comes from his letter to Timothy. And actually, over the last few weeks, wrestling with Philippians, I've come to see a much more human Paul. A Paul who experiences internal turmoil between what he wants and what God wants. And what Paul says in that passage that we heard read for us is, you know what, I, I was that person, that religiously 
super duper kosher Pharisee. I was born righteous. I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is the earliest day it can happen. You know, every box you had to tick to be a good Orthodox Jew, I ticked it. I suspect he was one of those that tithed his mint and rue and all that kind of malarkey. He knew the law. He knew what it was about. He'd actually gone and persecuted those followers of Jesus, remember? He held the coats while Stephen was stoned. And I actually wonder if he held the coats because that was kind of the clean thing to do. He didn't get his hands dirty by stoning. And now he says, you know, I see things differently. All my respectability, all my esteem, my status not interested in that. I see things differently since my encounter with Jesus Christ. Perhaps the blinding of Paul is more than just physical. Perhaps this is this symbolic closing of his eyes to his old ways and opening new eyes to see the world afresh. Now I do have a problem with one of the things that Paul says here. Because he says, forgetting what's past, I go on. But we can't, can we? Or I can't. I can't just forget what's past, because it matters. There is that saying, isn't there, that if we forget our past, we're doomed to repeat it. We have to remember the past, but somehow redeem it to find the lessons to learn, the truths to carry forward into our present and our future. That was kind of what I was trying to do in my research project that never quite finished. It's not about forgetting the past. It's about saying, I won't be defined by the past. The foul-ups, the mess-ups, whatever they are, I'm not going to let them define me. We're not going to let them define us. Instead, our eyes are fixed on a goal. And the goal for Paul is Christ. We have the image, don't we, of the athlete running, fixing their eye on the finish line. For Paul, Christ And all that Christ symbolizes, that renewed kingdom, the justice, the joy, the freedom from sin, the redemption, the reconciliation, that's what he's looking at. That's the focus of his life. And he sort of talks about not looking left or right. Now that's fine, but it's a tad individualistic for me. Because we're set in communities. I wonder if you can remember earlier in the summer, um, we had a week when people brought in their medals. And I remember Graham and Freya and Sarah particularly brought in your medals from um, a walk, run, run it was, that you'd done. And we talked about the fact that some people ran further and some people ran faster. But that didn't matter because we all ran with the same aim. So whether you were a grown-up and could run 10 kilometres at some ridiculous pace, or a small child and could just about run a kilometre, it was equally good, because we were in it together. We had a common goal. And I think that's partly what this image that Paul is giving us tries to suggest. 
And at risk of um, offending the people I didn't offend last week, one of the images that has really struck me from the whole referendum debate was when Leslie Riddock came and spoke to us here. And right at the start of her talk, she kind of told us a parable. You might call it the parable of learning to ski. She talked about standing at the top of a hill, learning to ski and setting off, and seeing ahead of her a small child who she desperately wanted to avoid. But the more she focused on this child and tried to avoid her, the more she headed towards her. And what she said, and this is a real truth to take with us, whatever way we think or voted or any of that stuff, however much you feel I'm pushing you too fast or too slow, we don't look at the thing we don't want. We don't focus our energy on the regrets, on the past that is hurtful, whatever it is. As best we are able and together at our own pace, we focus on the good we want. And some people might be able to do that quicker than others, and some people might need more time. And both of those is okay. Last week, I gave you out the values that were um, created as part of imagining Scotland's future. They're kingdom values. They're the values we've talked about this morning. Equality, justice, fairness, inclusion. Really good values that surely, surely anyone who claims to follow Christ can sign up to. I'm not going to bang on about that. I'm not by nature a political person. That's probably part of my problem. But we are given this image of a God who never, ever gives up. A God who keeps sending prophets, who sent his son, her son, its son. A God who continues to say to humanity, in its fallenness, brokenness, frailness and fallibility, steward my vineyard. And bring me the harvest, justice, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness. You know the fruit of the Spirit as well as I do, if not better. This, I think, is what it means to live for Christ. We thought about Paul's understanding that to live is Christ. Last week we thought about to live like Christ. The fact of the matter is, all of us, in whatever way we can, are called to live for Christ. Amen. Now we come with our prayers for others and for each other. Let's pray together. Living God, we thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. You have given a new dimension to our lives, a hope and a purpose not of this world. 
a taste of eternal life with all the fulfilment that that offers. Resources to meet whatever challenges we may face, both individually and as a community of your people. We praise you that, through faith, we are able to glimpse things as yet unseen, that we are part of the great company of your people in heaven and on earth, that we are pilgrims together on a journey of discovery, that we are in Christ. But we thank you that you have given us life in this world, that you have called us to serve you in a particular place and time, that we are Christians here and now in this part of Glasgow. Help us to work out our faith in this place, offering service to the community in which we are set, making the gospel real in our activities, in our relationships and in our attitudes. Living God, help us to anticipate your kingdom, but help us also to keep our feet on the ground, remembering that this begins now and not at some distant point in the future, on earth and not simply in heaven, here in Glasgow as much as anywhere. As we anticipate your kingdom, we have already sung the kingdom of God is justice and joy, mercy and grace. As we look around our broken world, we wonder where is justice and joy among those escaping bombs in the Middle East or fleeing from barbaric attacks of extremists? Where is justice and joy in the crowing queues at food banks in our own country? Where is mercy and grace when those who go to bring aid to the suffering are themselves kidnapped, threatened and killed? Loving God, sometimes it is hard to believe that this world can ever change for the better. We see countries broken by war, consumed by hatred, thousands living in fear, nation turned against nation, multitudes made homeless by disaster, and again we wonder what hope anyone can offer. Transforming God, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to see beneath the surface, recognising that you're at work and that things can change. Help us to see beyond appearances, recognising that you are a God able to transform even the most hopeless of situations. Loving God, Come again to our world through your Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ. And as we are people who are in Christ, help us to be part of the answer to our own prayers, which we bring in Christ's name. Amen.
Lead us, Lord. Lead us from despair to hope. Lead us from regret to renewed commitment. Lead us from where we are to where you want us to be. Lead us gently. Lead us strongly. Lead us onwards towards the eternal hope of your new creation this day and every day. Thank you.